You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. When you think of your favorite verses in the Bible, or the ones you run to for encouragement, or the ones that get sweet graphics on Instagram and sweet graphics on Facebook, I can almost guarantee it is not going to be any of the verses we look at this morning. Today we are going into one of the, wading into the neglected part of the Old Testament. Uh, People are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows those or have heard of them, but not many of us are familiar with the amplified version of the Ten Commandments that follow right after. Laws on theft and laws on murder and laws even on accidental murder. Laws on, uh, on animals going crazy, accidental death, uh, and even boiling an animal in its mother's milk. Now, I love a good Bible graphic. I love a good graphic on Instagram. But there is a subtle danger to the Insta Bible and coffee cup verses. Because if we aren't careful, we can begin to make a caste system of Scripture. These are the relevant verses. These are the ones that encourage us. These are the ones that mean a lot to us. And then these are the irrelevant ones. These are the ones that confuse me. These are the ones I'm just going to zip right past. But, but listen, beloved. The verse about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, it matters to you. And here's why. First, if anyone is tempted to do such a thing today, don't do it. But we're going to see why it matters even more. And here's why I love this section of Exodus. So go ahead and turn your Bible to Exodus 21. And what I love about this passage of Scripture and others like it is that it helps us avoid what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And it's that we automatically assume and think newer is better. Old means outdated. Old means it's not relevant. That may be true of iPhones and video games, that old is outdated, and it's especially true with gallons of milk. But it's not true of truth. Truth is always relevant. As Paul tells us on the screen in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, so that includes Exodus 20 through 24, these laws we're going to look at, is inspired by God, and look at it, is profitable has something for you in terms of teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training and righteousness. So these verses today, they are far from outmoded and out of touch with 21st century suburban life. These verses, hear me, these verses are ancient discipleship. Ancient discipleship for today for the followers of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Exodus 21, and we're going to jump into what I think to be one of the most relevant and helpful passages for us today here in Tomball. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 28. And let's stand together, follow along, listen along, flip and open, turn on your Bible to this section. Exodus 21, 28. I know we're going to be blessed as we, the first verse alone will bless your socks off. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and it must, and its meat may not be eaten, but the ox's owner is innocent. 
However, if the ox was in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, yet does not restrain it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned, and its owner must also be put to death. If instead a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life and the full amount demanded from him. If it gores a son or a daughter, he's to be dealt according to the same law. If the ox gores a male or female slave, he must give 30 shekels of silver to the slave's master, and the ox must be stoned. When a man uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must give compensation, and he must pay to its owner, but the dead animal will become his. When a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they must sell the live ox and divide its proceeds. They must also divide the dead animal. If, however, it is known that the ox was in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not restrained it, he must compensate fully. Ox for ox, the dead animal will will become his. And let's thank God for the reading of his word to us today. Father, help us as we look at these bizarre, ancient, head-scratching, confusing laws found in your word. We believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, there is something profitable for us here, this is, which is why we're not skipping it. So would you meet us here today, King Jesus, by the power of the Spirit? Show us how these apply to following you. And it's in your mighty name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Back in 1948, Connecticut passed a law to protect consumers. And the new state regulation that they passed was that a pickle must bounce from the height of one foot or it's unfit for human consumption. Still stands today in Connecticut. Shady, here's why. Shady pickle packers were picking a pack of pickle peppers and putting them for sale when they were unfit for human consumption. So the FDA of Connecticut says, if these pickles don't bounce, you can't sell them. Every state has weird, out-of-date, ignorable laws. Our great state, it's illegal to sell your own eyeballs, in case you were wondering. In Indiana, it's illegal to attend a public event or use public transportation within four hours of eating onions or garlic. That's a great law. In Washington state, you can be arrested for harassing Bigfoot. In Alabama, it's illegal to wear a fake mustache that will make people laugh in church. In Maine, it is illegal to keep Christmas decorations up past January 14th. Yay. And there was a small town somewhere in the U.S. I mean, these are so crazy. One where it was illegal for a woman to drive down Main Street without her husband waving a red flag walking in front of her. These laws, and we can go on and on and on. These laws are definitely out of touch. Obviously, they were needed for a moment. Something weird required these. um, But they can pretty much all be waved off. Do not view Exodus 20 through 24 in this way. Paul says it's profitable for us to teach us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness on how to live as disciples of Christ. And here's how it begins. We live before the presence of God. We live before 
the presence of God. Forgot the thee there, but you got it. We live before the presence of God. Now skip back to Exodus 20. Look at verse 22. Exodus 20, 22. After they receive the Ten Commandments, after they've learned, okay, here's what it looks like to, to follow God and to obey him, he reminds them of something. Verse 24, chapter 20. Make an earthen altar for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, don't build it out of cut stones. If you use a chisel on it, you will defile it. What what is God talking about? As they're walking towards the promised land, God tells them in every place that you stop, build an altar, worship me, bring sacrifices. Why? Because God wants them to know Yahweh the Lord does not live on Sinai. It'd be really easy for them to think that's where God is. That's where we have to honor God. The thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the law, Moses, God's presence, that's where God lives. And he's telling them, this is not Mount Olympus. You don't have to just honor me when you're around Mount Sinai. You honor me everywhere you go. I am not some regional God that only lives in this part of the world. I am the Lord of the world, and I am everywhere you go. Don't think honoring me at Sinai is more significant than honoring me in your daily life with an ox that's out of control, with a pit that you uncovered, or with a pickle that's not bouncing. See, but this is our tendency we think there are certain places where that's where we, where we really have to honor God, but our other places in life, it doesn't matter. Like a place like this. People call church buildings, that's God's house. Especially when it's not medieval times this morning. But in a normal church building, like a First Baptist Tomball or whatever, people grow up and think, oh, that's God's house, that's God's house. We've got to honor God there, we've got to honor God there. But then they go to their own homes and dishonor God. Go to their own homes and dishonor one another. And what God is saying through these laws and telling them how to worship him wherever they go, saying, you got to honor me everywhere. God doesn't live in church buildings and waiting for us to come and see him. He is everywhere. And this is why it's a great hypocrisy to honor God on Sunday morning and then dishonor him during the week or dishonor one another during the week. We can't say we love God on Sunday morning and then dishonor one another. Be negligent, lack integrity, lack responsibility. Let an ox gore who's in the habit of goring during the week. So God is telling us we worship him in every day. And he applies it even more in verse 25. Look at 25 again. If you make a stone altar, he said he wants an earthen altar, which means dirt, pile it up, rocks and twigs, pile it up, and then make an altar to me with these stones. But when the stone altar, don't build it out of cut stones. Don't use a chisel on it. Why? He wants to communicate to them the worship of God is found in the ordinariness and the ordinary things of life, dirt and rocks, stones. He wants us to realize you don't have to have a beautiful scenario or some impressive, elaborate, curb appeal life, curb appeal church, curb appeal scenario to worship me. It is ordinary people and the ordinariness of life and the normal parts of life like dirt and rocks That's where you find the environment of worshiping God. And he prohibits crafting the stones, cutting them. Because he wants us to realize, you cannot improve upon worshiping me. You cannot do it your way. It will be my way. And also our tendency is, if we do something nice for God, we're off the hook. 
God, I, I built you this nice altar so I, I can avoid you now all these other places. I, I did this nice thing for you, God. I'm off the hook of honoring you and, and honoring one another. I came to church. I dressed up. I gave money. So I'm off the hook. And God says, no, no, no. I'm not looking for impressive outward appearances. I want your life. I'm not looking for impressive displays of religion. I want your life to honor me. Is yours. Is your life honoring him? This is where these laws unfold. They encounter the everyday situations of life. Work life, parenting, accidents, animals going crazy, fights, crimes, theft, and more. And the thing about an animal being boiled in its mother's milk that is later in Exodus, it's a borrowed, a stolen fertility practice from another religion. That's unnatural. That a vehicle of life, its mother's milk, being turned into a vehicle of death that is being boiled into it. It's this bizarre, unnatural ritual to try to now incite the gods, will you help us have a baby? And the Lord says, don't you dare adopt the ways of the world. You rely on me. I am not cruel. I am not absurd. And I do not ask you to do anything unnatural. God is teaching them how to live in a society. One of my favorite moments in Seinfeld is when George Costanza, Jerry's best friend, is waiting to pick Jerry up from the airport. And he doesn't have a watch on. And Jerry's flight is late and he can't tell what time it is. So he asks a stranger who's next to him, hey, what time is it? And this grumpy old guy says, there's a clock over there. He goes, yeah, I, it's far, but you have a watch on. What time is it? It's over there. I know it's over there. You have a watch on. Just tell me the time. It's over there. And George goes, what's your problem? He grabs the guy's arm, wants to see what time it is. And the guy says, you're nuts, and walks away. And George looks at him and then looks at all the people watching and says, you know, we're living in a society. I love that part because it resonates with me so much. There are basic social protocols we follow for each other. When someone asks you what time it is, you don't go, I'm not telling you. You should have had a watch on. I'm not going to waste my battery on my phone to open it and tell you. No, you tell someone. When someone sneezes, you say, bless you. When you're walking through a parking lot and you're going through the crosswalk and there's a car coming, what do you do? Everyone does this. They do the little faster walk jog thing. Like that's really helping. But it's just common courtesy. I see you. I'm trying to hurry, but I don't want to break a sweat. We are living in a society now imagine millions of people freed from Egypt having to camp out together now. God says, I'm going to help you guys function as a society. I'm going to give you rules and give you help so, how, so you can learn how to love one another. And as the church of the risen Christ, we need the same thing. We are nomads toward the new Jerusalem. We too are learning how to bear with one another, how to forgive one another, how to encourage one another, how to welcome one another, how to serve one another, and how to love one another. So beloved, these ancient laws, they are applicable for our discipleship. They are not making us righteous, but we do them because we have been made righteous in Christ. These laws are ours. Now hear me. These laws are not for the United States of America. This is a confusion that sometimes Christians have. Yep, these laws, this is exactly what the United States should be doing. That's not true. These were given for Israel, a nation. And now the people of God today, we are not a nation, but we are in many nations. We are in many places, many tribes, many languages, many tongues. 
And when Christians say, no, we have to have our government have these things, I just always want to ask them, how different is that than Muslims wanting Sharia law? Because this is not meant to be for governments now. This is for people all around the world, for how do we really honor God? So how do we summarize it? The passage we read, I picked that one because I thought it was the most odd one out of all of them for us today. Unless anyone has an ox and goring people, we can talk about that specifically. So let's ask the question, how in the world is a passage about an oxen and the habit of goring people, how does that matter to my life right now? Paul tells us in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. This is how that passage applies. This is the one about how a bonfire, we're going to read about it, if it goes too crazy. If your ox gores another ox, love your neighbor as yourself. And it is in three ways. Responsibility, caring, and integrity. These are all acts of love. Responsibility, caring, and integrity. These are acts of love. So if someone has an ox that they knew was in the habit of goring, what, is, what does the Bible say? Look at 28 again. An ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned. Don't even eat it. Don't dignify the animal. It needs to be put to death. 29. However... If the ox was in the habit of goring and its owner's been warned, hey, dude, your ox is crazy. Oh, I didn't know. I'll take care of that. I'll pin it up, double gate it, double fence, triple gate, whatever. But it does not restrain it and it kills a man or a woman. The ox is stoned and what? And the owner must also be put to death. He's liable. Love your neighbor as yourself. You, you treat your neighbor as though that's me. You think of your neighbor as though that were you. So today, someone has a dog that's too aggressive, bites children. It should be handled. It should be dealt with. Now, if you're out there going, man, but I love Fido. Listen, you can't love Fido more than you love a human being. This is what the Lord's saying. You can't love some ox more than someone made in God's image. You, you can't love an animal more than someone made in God's image. So let's take it to another level, because the ox isn't a pet. This ox is more economically important than Fido. It's machinery. It's farm equipment. It makes money for the owner. This is my prize ox. The Lord says your money and your market share are not as valuable as those made in God's image. If it killed another person's ox, you owe him an ox. So here's how this applies to, especially if you own companies, you're higher up in a place, your home, whatever. Safe working conditions matter to God. This is so practical. Christian employees and Christian businessmen and women should recognize safe working conditions are acts of love towards employees and acts of love towards neighbors because responsible ownership matters to God. Your electricity codes, all those kinds of things God cares about. And I care about them too because I almost died one night. Driving home from a Redeemer work night, we were painting and fixing up a building we were about to rent a few years back. And I'm driving home on Hardenstore Road in Magnolia. It's pitch black and I'm in my 95 Camry. The wheel's much smaller. I'm in my 95 Camry. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I see huge legs, four legs in front of me. Huge brown body clomping across the road. It's a horse. And everything slows down. Life flashes. I mean, seriously, like, and I'm thinking a million miles an hour. I'm driving 45 miles an hour. 
and I recognize if I just keep going and I clip this horse's legs, he is going to fall into my windshield and kill me. And if I swerve to the left, I'm going to hit this horse on the backside. It's going to kill me even more. And if I can't swerve too hard to the right, there's a ditch on the right, and I'm going to go right into the ditch and also have an accident that way. So I just screamed, closed my eyes, jerked the wheel, and jerked it back. And as I did that, that horse's head, boom, slammed into my windshield. Spiders my windshield. I get out and see a long scratch from his teeth on the roof of my car. Horse hair and blood all over my windshield. I drive home, my mirrors are gone. I call, it bent the frame, like where my windshield, or those two sides of the car meet. And I call my insurance, I hit a horse. They said, I've got to put you on hold for a second. They come back, are you sure it wasn't a dog? Yes! <laughs> I know the difference between a horse and a dog. I wait the next day, and I said, I'm going to go find whoever's horse this was and have a little chat. And so I'm looking at all these homes by where it was. All these people have horses. And there's this one house. There's the cattle guards. And in front of the cattle guards is a nice pile of poop. And then out in the street, just a few steps away, is another pile of poop. Bingo. I drive up to that house. They open the door. I say, you see that car? I hit my horse. I hit your horse in that car. And the lady goes, again? Exactly what Moses is talking about. Negligence, responsibility, caring for others. Now, I don't think any of us have oxen that are goring or harming, but you know what we do have? You can apply this in a million ways. We have taillights. We have brake lights. God cares about your brake lights because God cares about the person behind you. He cares about you texting and driving and being responsible. These are all applications of this ancient law to 21st century New Covenant Christians who are wanting to love their neighbors as themselves. So the Lord says, you got to care for others. You're not the only driver on the road. So we got to see these laws and God teaching Israel in us that we cannot live like our life is all about us because it's not. You cannot organize and budget and plan your life with disregard to others. Because Christians who have been crucified with Christ and we've been raised with Christ and we've experienced his love and we've experienced him loving us to the point of death, the Apostle John tells us, you cannot say you love God and then not love your neighbor. Look at what he says in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is unloving to his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot say, cannot love God whom he has not seen. John says, how can you think that you love God, that you love Jesus, and you haven't seen him? And yet you sit next to your wife, you sit next to your husband, you're there with your kids, you're there with your coworkers, there with your neighbors whom you see every day, and you do not love them. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister, his neighbor, his friend, his family member, his employee, his coworker, his fellow Christian. How can we be a loving to them? We see them. And to Jesus, loving one another isn't just Christianly sentiments. 
It's actions. It's carrying that load another mile. It's giving that cloak when they ask for it. It's turning the other cheek. It's taking care of that ox that's out of control. It's treating employees fairly. Even when he talks about slaves here earlier, the six years and then let them go on the seventh. If they have a wife, they stay together. If they have kids, they stay together. This isn't, people have used this passage in church history to try to justify slavery. It's wrong. Because even this passage says, if you kidnap somebody, you deserve death. So this kind of slavery that's happening in Israel in, in Hebrew times, this is not the same as the American slave trade, where families were ripped apart, where people were kidnapped, people were treated unfairly. The Lord's saying, if some, this slavery here is more like somebody is in massive debt and has no way out and says, I will work for you. You just provide for me shelter and food, and I'm going to pay it back. And if it takes longer than six years, God says, I don't care. Let him go. This is not the same thing. God says, even treat them fairly. Don't rip their family apart. Don't be cruel to them. Love your neighbor, even if it is someone that has become your indentured servant for six years. God wants you to be responsible to employees and coworkers, having integrity, and even giving restitution. Look at chapter 22, verse 5. Chapter 22, verse 5. When a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed in, then allows his animals to go and graze in someone else's field, uh-oh. This is a no-no in ancient times. It's, this is worse than letting your dog poop in someone else's yard. He must repay with his best of his own field or his vineyard. So your animal's eating someone else's crops. He says, you got to pay. It's stealing. That's not yours. And you took from them. So listen, this might be uber convicting for you, but just let the Holy Spirit rest on you. When you said you wanted a water cup and you got soda, you got to pay. It's just integrity, responsibility. Your bonfire, look at the next one, verse 6. When a fire gets out of control, spreads the thorn bushes and consumes stacks of cut grain, stuff they've already harvested, or standing grain they haven't harvested yet, or the field, the whole thing, the one who started the fire must make full restitution for what was burned. But if your bonfire gets out of control, you're this farmer, you can't just say, oh, my bad. No, I, I owe you. We usually don't have bonfires go out of control, but when, you know what we all have that goes out of control? Our children. Walking fires. <laughs> Your kid breaks something at someone's house? You can't just say, my bad. You know how kids are. No, you pay it back. If they won't let you because they're too kind, no, 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 no. You figure out how much it costs. You research it. You guess. You hide cash in their house. Because a gospel culture, the society of Christ's people who've been risen from the dead with him, we love one another. We're responsible. We're proactive against negligence. We live with integrity. We make restitution for wrongs. Because Jesus' death, beloved, when we were his enemy, when you were at odds with him, you were against him. He pursued you and paid for your sins when you did not ask him to. When you could not make restitution, he made it for you. And he won you to himself and he loved you to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now his resurrection from the dead, he brings us to him and he says, now you're going to live like me. Now you're going to learn to love like me. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you to love your neighbors. And I'm going to help you even love your enemies. And look at what he says in 
Exodus 23. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 1. You must not spread a false report. Don't join the wicked to be a malicious witness. Verse 2, you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. How does this apply? A lot of people park in those customer with children spots at H-E-B, and they don't have kids. They don't have an expectant mother. I see dudes parking an expectant mother. I'm like, there better be a mom in there. Mm-mm. Call the police. Love your neighbor. doesn't matter what other people are doing. You live with integrity because Christ is risen. I have a greater responsibility. I have a greater calling on my life now than just the manager at HEB. The risen Lord is calling me to love my neighbor. In verse 4, if you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must not smile and cackle. You must return it to him, it says. Verse 5, I love, I love verse 5. If you see the donkey or someone who hates you lying helpless under its load, and look at what the Bible says, and you want to refrain from helping it. The Bible just reads our mail. You see it and you love that it's in pain. You see your enemy and you just smile inwardly. Yes. The Bible says, hey, I know this is going to happen. You don't want to help. But look what the Bible says. God says you must help with it. How does this apply? There's a great phrase I've heard tossed around a lot lately. It's, it is true on very many levels. And it usually has to do when people's kids are going nuts and they're acting bad. And you feel like, oh, I should do something. I should say something. What should I do? And the phrase is, not my monkeys, not my circus. It's not my monkeys, not my circus. That's true. I'm not ultimately responsible for those monkeys, those, those kids. I'm not. But don't spread that too far. Because while those may not be your monkeys, that is your neighbor. And we are our brother's keeper. And they may need your help at some point. And I remember working at Starbucks, and this one employee, this one shift supervisor, she gave the wicked witch of the West a run for her money. She was so cruel and mean. Mean Girls 2.0. Nobody liked her. And she left her headlights on one day. And everybody's like, did you see she left her headlights on? Yes. Just everybody loved it. And we just let our imaginations run wild and just get a buzz off of her thinking, oh, she's going to leave and her car won't turn on. She'd be the last one here. Yes. No one will be here to jump her car. Did I tell her? I can't remember. So let's say I did. <laughs> I love to think I did. Would I now? Yes. Because I know the risen Lord cares about her and about us loving others, even enemies, because we've been so loved. So that coworker that's always one-upping you or that coworker that's always undercutting you or just always gets under your skin, our inclination is to turn our back on those people we don't click with, is to turn our back in opposition to them when they're carrying a load into the office and they're trying to hold the door open with their foot. Our inclination is to see them and go right back. But Jesus says, no, 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 hop up. Go, go serve them. Go love your enemy. Help with their car. Jump their car. Because Jesus tells us in Luke 6, I say to you who listen, love your enemies. You know why? Because he did this. He loved you. And if we're learning to live like Jesus, he's saying, this is what you're going to do because I did this to you. 
you're gonna love your enemies. You're gonna do what is good to those who hate you because that's what he did. You're gonna bless those who curse you because that's what he did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pray for those who mistreat you because that's what he did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because when we were enemies of God, he loved us. Jesus came and died for us, for those who had treason against him. And so when you know the great love of Christ, his death and resurrection for your sins, when you were an enemy and he made you a friend, it empowers you to love others if you know his love. So do you know it? I mean, do you ever marvel at how unwilling we are to be inconvenienced by others? When this happens in the church, I'm no stranger to this. A group text goes out, hey, can you help me move? Crickets. Hey, you want to come over and watch the game? Yeah, man, I'll be there. We're all, we're all unwilling at times to be inconvenienced to give rides, to help someone move, to hear someone's story. Someone's running late, and we can't believe they're running late because we're so righteous and perfect. We've never run late in our lives. But love says, you can't inconvenience me because you are me. I'm loving you as myself. You can't inconvenience me because you are me. And Jesus did that for us. When he died in our place, that was us dying, even though it wasn't us. And we've been crucified with him and we've been raised with him. And so as we live before the face of God and as we learn to live responsibly, not in negligence, caring and loving one another, there's one last thing we all must remember. We have blood on our hands and blood on our heads and blood on our hearts. In Exodus 24, you can flip to 24. After they hear all these laws and hear all these instructions, they, they hear them and they say, we're gonna do them. We're going to obey them. Look at verse 3 of chapter 24. So Moses came and told the people all the commands, the oxen, the theft, the bonfire, all the pit, all of these things. And all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Verse 4. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning, set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain that he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And look what Moses did, verse six. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins and the other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. And then in verse seven, he tells us that he then took the covenant scroll, all those words that he wrote down, and read it aloud to the people. They responded again, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 8, Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. The people said, we're going to do all this. And the Lord's like, no, you're not. You're not able to. But I'm going to cover you with blood. And I'm going to preemptively sacrifice bulls and goats for you to cover your failures. And you're gonna have to do this every single year. You have to do this all the time because you're not gonna be able to really obey me. And so he splattered the altar to show them, hey, these people have sinned, will you accept them? And God says, I'll accept them right now. And then he takes all that blood and then splatters it on the people. 
you guys are unrighteous. You guys do not obey. You guys have fallen short, but you're covered with blood. It's like you are forgiven. He is setting them apart that these are my people, but he's also showing them you've already sinned. You've already failed. So don't think that tying up your oxen now is going to make you right with me. I don't think that covering up that pit and reigning in your bonfire, that's going to make you a moral righteous person. They are constantly going to need the blood of bulls and goats applied to all of their falling short. And in a sense, so do we. But we have the blood of Jesus, the one who obeyed the law perfectly, who loved his father perfectly, and who loved his neighbors perfectly, even as they were mocking him, even as they were punching him even as they were nailing his hands and feet to a cross. He loved his neighbors perfectly. And one drop of his blood, once and for all, splattered onto us, covers all of our sins, covers all of our failures to love, and he sets us right. Now he teaches us how to love. It is not us now trying to apply these laws to our life. Now I'm not going to get the water. I'm not going to get soda when I said water. So now, Lord, would you bring me to heaven? No, no, no. We do those things now because Christ has made us his and we're learning to live how Jesus would live. We won't be made righteous by loving one another, but we will love one another because we have been declared righteous, because we have been declared his. We will replace our our brake lights and not post it on Facebook and toot our horns. Look how righteous I am. I fixed my brake lights. But because we love our neighbors and because Jesus loved us, So we love one another. So by the blood of Jesus, splattered on you, walk forward as his disciple, who are no longer failures, but you've been made new in his blood. You've been made new in Jesus. And let's learn to walk and live anew together as we walk forward to that new Jerusalem with blood on our hands and blood on our chest and his blood on our heads. Because it's Christ alone and none of our works that make us righteous. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.